Glenn, Chris, yep. you guys have been inside some very different FPNA teams. Um, talk me through some of the models that you've seen and worked within and, and built yourself. So maybe I'll start with you this morning, Glenn. Sure. Uh, so I've been a part of a very, very large FPNA team. Uh, 84 people was when I first joined at Charles Schwab. Um, I've actually heard of some other companies, some very some of the larger companies in the world. I've like sometimes a thousand people in FPNA. So sometimes you know FPNA could be just a, a really big group. Um, I've also started groups from scratch where I would have it would just either be me or I would eventually within a year or two be able to hire one or two people and you take a little different approach with, with each of those. So if you're in a large company, you have an FPNA team that is very specific in what each person's role is. That when, so for example, when I was at Charles Schwab, I was a director that was supporting only the portfolio management division. And that was it. I had one person reporting to me when I first started and two people in FPNA, all they did was support that one division we didn't do anything else. We didn't do, you know, we didn't uh, do total company planning. We weren't doing profitability analysis. It was anything that was related to product management, and that was it. When I started a, FP, a corporate FP&A team at Digital Realty, I was the only employee. I covered the entire company for uh, all expenses, personnel, business cases, you name it, whatever the, whatever that had to be. Built out an F, uh, a finance business partner function, had to own the budget process, the forecast process, re consolidation reporting, monthly reporting, the whole thing. And so it really does uh, cover a very wide spectrum depending on your organization. And I think the first thing that I would say is when you're thinking about building or expanding your team, I always look at it as you got to create the demand first. Make sure that you have the need from the business before you start going out and hiring people. Because the last thing that you want is people to be looking at a finance organization saying, you guys keep on adding more people, you're spending so much money, and me over here in sales or marketing or operations, I can't get the funds that I need to go and build our group, our, our company outside. And that creates some bad optics. So I always look at it as create the demand first. When you have demand for about 80% of another role, that's when you want to go over and, and, and make the business case to go over and add some additional people. So, uh, Rowan, I know I'm, you, you kind of started off, it was pretty general in your, uh, in your question, and I kind of covered a, a pretty broad spectrum there, but I figured that might be good to get us going. Yeah, yeah no, that, that, that's, that's awesome. awesome. Um, I, I, think, I think, you know, you know just, just hearing, hearing uh, for those folks, folks listening, listening, right, a team of 85 to a team of one, right? and you're looking after one functional business unit of a big, much bigger organization, and then you go to a team of one. I, I wanna come back to you on that, Glenn, because I, I do wanna ask you some questions about when you're a team of one, how do you really think about um, scaling that team? Uh, and, and how do you then start to think and evaluate uh, the the growth opportunity for that team that is one and, and how do you think of systematizing all of that? But I want to go uh, to Chris next. Chris, you've worked in some, uh, you know, various uh, FP&A departments. What have you seen in terms of organizational structure and, 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 you know, give me the counterpoint to Glenn's environment. 
Yeah, so uh, you know, I think Glenn having eighty four people on an FPNA team that that sounds like I mean that's like four that's like a three football teams. I've never had that experience. So I think like the largest uh, FPNA team I was a part of was at the largest company I was a part of, which is a pharmaceutical drug development company, and we supported. We were in Central Labs, and we supported all of our entire globe. So we supported Indianapolis, Geneva, Shanghai, Singapore, and Tokyo. We're like literally our operating units, and we had uh, a team of FPNA people, probably about 15 people, supporting the entire Central Labs location, which was probably close to, uh, I would say, probably $2 billion of just one of the individual elements of Covance. And then I've also had experiences where I think Glenn mentioned, where most of my experience has been around like literally the first FPNA person, right? Or uh, building it out or transitioning people from accounting to FPNA, which is something I definitely want to talk about. Cause we'll probably have listeners that are looking to always make that jump. But for me, I've always looked at it to say, and most of the time when you're coming in and you know, you're going to be part of FPNA, it's there, the company, the leaders, the, 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 the industry is at an appetite to move away from just the scorekeeping aspect of it. So where I've always been a part of, whether it's, you know, startup companies where I've been a part of, or even like scaling up companies where I'm at at Amarsis, or even like publicly traded companies with, with uh, Covens that I was a part of, those experiences are like they've outgrown a certain area and now they want to branch out more. So for me, like part of that value proposition and part of going through like the, do you hire internally? Do you outsource? Do you take FPNA as a service, which I think is a whole nother element that a lot of organizations are leveraging right now. It's like, where are you, where are you moving from and where do you want to go? So like at a Marsis, for instance, like, you know, completely coming into a Marsis a little under five years ago, there was no accounting finance FPNA at all. It was all outsourced to a great partner that gave the business the, the books and that was it. And we really grew as a business and we knew that America was going to be our total addressable market and the revenue growth of our entire company. Right. So when they came across that, you know, I remember talking in preliminary conversations and getting the lay of the land to say, you know, our, our CFO told us that accounting was outsourced, but here's where you need to be focused. Like you need to be on the strategy side. Like this is the piece of it that I brought to the table that was completely different than what they originally wanted for the position. Like they originally wanted someone to come in and be that typical controller and just bring accounting in-house because we were looking at tools and technologies to centralize. So I said, well, you know, if you need that, you don't need me. Like you're going to overpay me to have somebody just coming in, moving accounting over and doing the blocking and tackling. Like, let's just save ourselves some both some time. I'm not going to be the person you need in that situation. But if this is what you're looking to do and this is what the business needs in terms of insights, partnership, uh, processes, collaboration, communication, like if these are the things that you guys need, not only now, but three, four, five years from now, this is where, you know, I could build the foundation around that. So that was a conversation. And it was, it, you know, I think in those conversations, when you talk about looking at those different avenues that go down, that's really what you want to be thinking about. And I think FPNA is always about I, I four pillars that I always talk about in scalability when it comes to FPNA in any decision you're making people, process, platform, and partnership. Like those are always the elements around it. And typically a team, an organization or company reaches different perspectives on where they're at in that curve on those four Ps 
And that is really where you like, okay, does it make sense to bring in like a super talented person? Does it make sense to have an outsourced person to kind of help us fill in this need? So that's usually how I've always evaluated um, those decisions. And it's always the classic build, buy, or produce, or develop inside. So yeah, and it really depends on the time window that you're given by the organization. And and so I just want to stop here to the listeners. Uh, we've got two folks on the line that have built FP&A teams from scratch where they've been the first people. So this is going to be a fun conversation because they're going to probably tell us different things about how they went through their thinking process. And, uh, and then we can just discuss, hey, why did you do it that way? Why did you do it that way? So I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think maybe the environments were different and maybe the way that they needed or the, the constraints or the guardrails that they were given were different. Um, so I, I'm really excited about the, uh, the next 45 minutes or so here. So let's do this. Let's do this fun game, right? Glenn, you're dropped into digital realty. How did you think about and what guardrails were you given to think about building out FP&A as a function at Digital Realty? So first of all, a little level setting here. Digital Realty, when I joined, was a $3 billion revenue company that was public and in the S&P 500. They had a FP&A group supporting the property side because they're a data center REIT. So they had 200 plus properties. They had property people. They had no one on the corporate side. So nobody looked at the corporate FP&A. That's what I was asked to build out. Got it. So I came into an organization that already had 2,000 employees, that had $3 billion in revenue, that was, as I said, in the S&P 500. This is a very unique situation. Most companies, by the time you're public and you're in the S&P 500, you kind of already have an FP&A team of some kind. So, uh, so this was, to me, I looked at this and I was like, wow, this is such an incredible, unique opportunity. But really what I did is, the first thing I did is when I joined, I joined right at the beginning of their budget process that they were this was uh, late September of 2016 when I joined it so they were doing the 2017 budgeting and when you join and you are especially the only employee you don't go in immediately and start saying all right let's start making some changes I know what's best and I'm going to start doing these different things because you're going to screw that up the first thing you got to do is you got to listen observe I kind of say you got to play sponge you got to absorb what's around you so I went in and I said look we're going to run your process. I'm here to help. Let me know how I can help. And I let the people who are running the process run the process as they had it laid out. Once we completed that, I was able to say, okay, now I understand where we are and what changes need to be made, right? There's a theme here, by the way, if you go back through almost every single one of these FP&A Fridays podcast that Chris and I are talking about is you got to know where you are, right? You, you got to have that starting point. So it, this applies across the board. So that was one of the things is, is before I made any changes, came up with any ideas, I needed to get a sense of what do we have? What systems do we have? What's the engagement with the organization as far as how do, how do uh, non-finance people interact? with finance? How do people within finance work with each other, work with HR, work with IT? What systems are available? What processes are out there? All of that stuff. Need to go over and level set on all those things. Once I got through that, really after, so this came to be around, so I joined at the end of September. This was probably about January. I started putting together a three-year plan or a strategy of what we were going to do and saying, year one, 
here's what year one looks like, here's what year two looks like, here's what year three looks like, with relatively, you know, it was started off very big picture, high level, and then it went into more details and had actual deliverables. And I ended up with, I believe, 29 different items that I was going to deliver on over the next three years. And the thing is, is that you got to start with then conversations. You can't just start producing reports because everyone's going to look at you and say, what are you doing this for? Right. In fact, when I produced my three year strategy and I showed it to my boss, his response was, what am I supposed to do with this? And I was like, really? What? <laughs> so, um, you know, so so you need to go over and start engaging with the business. And the best things that I always do ask them is, what are you what do you need that you're not getting today? What are you getting that you love and you want to keep? And what are you getting that you don't need at all? And you start with that kind of an inventory and you go over and you tell people, look, I'm not going to say I'm going to deliver on all the stuff you're asking me to deliver on, but I want that wish list and let me see what I can do. And people really do appreciate that process. But as you go through that, you now start building out where you need to go. And the more things that start coming up, hey, I need this, I need this, I need this. And you start hearing that from different executives. Now you, you can easily prioritize and say, all right, if I produce this, every single executive was asking for this. All right, so that needs to be at the higher part of my priority list versus, okay, the head of marketing was asking for this piece, but they're the only ones who want it. You're going to probably deprioritize that. And you got to go over and start big picture first, and then you got to start you know, narrowing down you know, where you focus. And then as you start building out that demand, you bring on more people, and then you can start getting into more very specific things. So that's generally uh, the approach that, that I took. Yeah, I, re I really like that, Glenn. I, I guess one question I would ask is, as you were joining, uh, or maybe in the first 30 days, what were the guardrails that the business gave you, right? Was it like, Glenn, you can't hire until X date? Or was it, hey, Glenn, we want you to do this assessment, or you, you advise them and said, hey, I need to do an assessment, and then at the end of 30 days, I'm going to come back with a, with a proposal, what were those guardrails when you initially started? Because I think that's really important for folks if, if you know, if you're thinking about um, making changes or doing what Glenn just described, getting that top-to-top -to -top alignment of here's the guardrails, here's the framework that the business wants from me is, is super important because otherwise all that assessment work, all that three-year strategy work, all of that you know alignment with other executives is kind of irrelevant if you can't execute because the guardrails that were predefined don't allow you that. Yeah, actually, what I have done, and this is, you know, across virtually every company I worked at, I've gone into a situation where I either built something out from scratch, or I had to take a smaller team and build and expand. And that was the objective of the role. Uh, I like to go in and say, don't give me any guardrails. Having that conversation up front is worthless, because I can't tell you what I need and where we should go without learning first. So if you put restrictions on me, those restrictions really aren't going to apply anyway. So it wasn't, hey, you can't hire anybody. It was, okay, you're going to start off. You, you are not going to be hiring anybody. And I would say, I don't want to hire somebody because I don't know what I need yet. So I need to figure out where am I and where is my biggest need? Then I know what I need to go and hire for. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I have to go back to my boss or the CFO or whoever it happens to be and say, okay, here's, the, here's where we are. I need to hire two people to do this because here's the gaps. Here's what we solve. Here's what you get. And here's how much money I need to go and hire those people. So 
in order to have an intelligent conversation, you got to once again get that lay of the land. And if you go in on day one and they say, okay, here's how I need you to operate. It's like, wait a second, you're going over and telling me I need to go and get to point B, but I don't even know where I'm starting from. So what direction do I move in? Why are you handcuffing me on this? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So even if I've never actually had that situation where someone put in those strict guardrails, but if they did, I would immediately push back on it. I'd say, you know what? Hold those thoughts. Let me come back to you in a couple months with an action plan, and then we could determine, is that action plan feasible over the next year, or do I need to pair it back, or can I scale it up? I love that. I think the um, I want to come back to you, Glenn, at that inflection point that you talked about where you go back and say, all right, well, now I've done my assessment. I need these these two people or three people or whatever it is. And then the decision making criteria from there, because that's basically the topic of today. Right. Which is right. You know, do I offshore it? Do I bring it in house? Do I outsource it? But really importantly for the for the folks listening, actually going through that assessment first helps you determine what type of people you need, all of that work. So we've heard Glenn's perspective of joining, you know, he wasn't the first FP&A person, but he was the first FP&A person on the corporate side of a crazy big company that was already in the S&P 500 and, and hadn't got there yet. Chris, let's talk about your experience. You're, uh, you're brought into Amasis, which is already a company that is doing well in Europe and looking to expand in North America and sees a huge opportunity there. What was, uh, what was the perspective of the Amasis team? And you, you already talked. They wanted you to come in on the accountancy side, and you're like, whoa, let me come in yeah. and do this other fun stuff. So talk us through that experience and, and the way that you, th- you approached it. Yeah, so, I mean, I was sitting here taking notes on Glenn, and I, I've, I've had three opportunities inside my career to, to build and shape an FP&A group completely from scratch, right? Uh, my first opportunity was when I was leaving public accounting, which – I, I want to talk about that one, Rowan, because I think a lot of people from a people perspective, they make this leap to FP&A and they want to go into it or they want to outsource it or they want to build FP&A. They typically come from the accounting side of the shop. Like that's typically where they are. And that's typically where the business is at. Right. Like they, they leverage their accounting people. But now they know they need more capacity inside the business to go to FP&A. So when I was leaving public accounting, like I'm looking through the stats Cha-Cha at the time, it was a mobile search company. Uh, this is bo- before the prevalence of internet on your phone. And, and we basically were a question answering service where like you texted in a question, we would give you an answer and we had interstitial advertising. It was a super cool business model. And like, ironically enough, we were using like natural language processing and some AI machine learning tools like back then, which is, you know, early 2009, if I'm dating myself. Um, I remember we those services. That was so much fun. You used to be with yeah, your buddies having so, a beer, and you would yeah, you'd yeah. like ask a dumb question and see what the answer yeah. was. That was that was great. That was before before Google was easily accessible on your phone, right? Exactly. And we were at the forefront of that. So we did some pretty cool stuff. And I remember leaving public accounting, and that was my first role. Like literally, my first role in an entrepreneurial tech startup. That whole environment was my first appetite into it. And I came in as an accountant, right? And we were, revenue size, we were about $1.2 million. We had 40 people. Uh, the scale of the accounting finance team was just two people. It was the controller and the CFO. And I was just brought in to say, hey, we need to get like the controller and C- uh, a CFO is a little too much. We need to bring somebody in to kind of do a little bit more of the tactical accounting work. So I came in for public accounting and I was like, I got that. I'm ready to come in and do it. 
and this role organically, and this is this is way before I even knew what FPNA was. This is way before even I got this was like the first experience that got me down this whole road of a chain of events. Like, you know, personally, I went back to school, got my MBA. I, you know, had my CPA, but I was like, you know what? This isn't even valuable to me. I'm not going to keep up with this CPE. I'm just going to go this FPNA route. But organically, how I came up is like, I got, I got so efficient with our processes in accounting. Like I was like, month and closes, done, all this stuff is done. I want to go to the business ops side. Like I want to go to the revenue ops people. I want to go to the sales ops people. And like, honestly, if I'm being honest, like those were my dudes. Like I love Trey and uh, Brian. Like they, they were like me, but I was like, yo, they're doing so much cool stuff. And they're like, I'll never forget the first day uh, Scott Jones, our founder and CEO asked me a question. He was like, okay, if we're getting this kind of advertisement, how does this follow through on the revenue side of the business? And he looked towards us and he was like, Ops is doing this. They're doing all this uh, nice machine learning. We're getting automation that's helping us on cash flow. How's that translating to revenue? And everybody in the room was like, we, we don't know how we take this group and mix it over to here. And as soon as I seen that question, like, I, I, I can still go back to being in that board meeting. I can still feel it. I remember being in that board meeting. It was like, Chris, run after that. Run after that question. Come back in the next board meeting and show them. So I took like weeks of spending time going through the Tableau models and understanding how we do all of this uh, natural language processing, how this automation and how all this, uh, how our advertising engine that on questions we were having on imp impressions was driving revenue on it came back and gave that presentation and everybody, everybody was sitting there like, Oh my, like, and I realized what I did. I was like, I bridged the gap between the business to how it drives bottom line results and what we should be doing. And I'll never forget. Scott came up to me. and was like, Chris, you just answered a question right now and just walked us through that with your expertise in doing that. Like what you just did is like the future of whatever you guys do. And like, and, and all of a sudden I was just like, I was like thrown into it. And then it became me having a conversation with our controller and CFO. Like, Hey, look, like I want to chase after this. Like, and they were like, yes, Chris, like go after this. And from the constraint perspective, the constraint was like, we were a growing company. We couldn't just go hire somebody. Right. So like I said, look, how about we do this? How about we get a couple of interns, right? Cut a couple of interns and get some college credit. It's low cost to us. You know, we can make it like a sexy experience for them as far as like them having this experience. So then I was grooming like interns to help do some of the tactical work that I was doing as, as I'm like transitioning into this. So we made it like cost effective, but like this like spurred my passion and I was like entrenched into this and it created a business model for us that we, we get into different areas. Like we were part of like Obama's first campaign from a tech perspective because he, he wanted to engage. Um, you know, we, we raised so many rounds of investing around all the analytics that we were able to provide. And it was like really, really cool. And, I, and like for me, it was that experience that said, you know what? I'm done with accounting. I'm going into FP&A now because now I started getting momentum. I'm going back to school to get my MBA. So I have the cost of entry to get into this. And it really changed the whole course of my life. So and that's what, you know, led me to other opportunities to be able to do that, which was completely different. But I share that example with the listeners because that jump from accounting, scorekeeping, 
that all that skill set mentality and all that stuff goes with it. It's always the the, the foundation of bridging over to what you want to do with FPNA, right? And the skill sets you need, outsourcing, insourcing, developing the people, all of that aspect of it. And for me, that was where I knew like this is where I'm gonna have the maximization of my skills, passions, and talents, and where I see like the ultimate value of what I'm doing. Uh, so that's just an example I wanted to share. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, one time in future, I want to talk about why didn't you jump all the way to the business side? Because I've, I've, I've had people on the Being Planful podcast, not on FPNA Fridays, where they've gone from accounting to FPNA and then they've gone, nah, I'm going all the way to the business side. And they end up in revenue operations and then they end up in sales roles and things like that. So that's always an interesting topic. Um, if, if we kind of step back, Glenn, let's come back to that inflection point. You're at Digital Realty. You've done your assessment. You've done your three-year strategy. You've got your big rocks, your your medium rocks, and you're going to fill in the sand if we all know that analogy, right? Um, and you're at that inflection point where you come to your boss and you say, this is what I need to achieve uh, my mission. What was it that you needed to achieve and how did you go through the thinking process of do I outsource this do i offshore this do i bring people in-house and and how do you then present that model to uh to your leadership team who will basically then ask those same questions why didn't you think about this why didn't you think about that why did you know like so so i'd love the listeners to hear that because i think that's super important for anyone that's in that kind of director vp role that's that's trying to grow their team you know, the experience that we can share here is valuable to those folks. Sure. So I'm going to start off with going a little sideways and I'm going to come back to this. Uh, when I was first out of college, I was training to be a commercial loan officer with Union Bank. And one of the concepts that they taught us was what they call the matching principle, which means that if you have a short term need, you finance it with short-term debt. If you have a long-term need, you finance it with long-term debt. Very simply, if you're gonna go buy a car or a house, you don't put it on your credit card. And if you need to go and buy groceries, you don't take out a term loan, right? Pretty simple. It's the same way that I look at it when it comes to the needs of the team and how you are going to fill those, those resources. If you need temporary reporting, get a contractor. You can outsource it. If you have a permanent need, you need a permanent hire. Because if you try and take a permanent need and fill it with a temporary resource, you are going to have turnover in that role. You're going to have a discontinuity with the business partners or whoever the person is that they are working with. And that is going to cause greater disruption. And you're going to spend more time trying to constantly fill that role on a temporary basis than you will if you go out and you hire somebody permanently. So when you are first building out and you're doing your assessment of here's where we are, here's where we need to get to, you need to understand what is temporary, what is, you know, what might be one time in nature and what is permanent. Now, the thing is, I'm going to come back to what I said earlier, which is you've got to build demand because if you don't have demand for what you're doing, people are going to say, we don't need you. So you have to build that up. And the way you build that up is by introducing what FPNA does to the business and get the business leader to say, oh my God, I not only want this, I want more. That's the demand. 
Because the second they say, I want you doing these different things, after a while, you're going to say, I'm only one person. There's only so much I can do. I need other people to come in and help. And that becomes a permanent need. And so what I really looked to do was go out and connect with those business leaders. Once again, ask them for their wish list. What is it that I would that I can deliver? And understand what the impact of those items are. If it is, I really need somebody to tell me exactly how many people I have in my group and what the costs, the, the payroll costs are associated to them. Well, if you do that in January and you do it again in February, and you do it again in March, you're kind of producing the exact same thing because people don't turn over that much. That's more of a one-time exercise. If it is something that's, that they say, hey, I need somebody who can sit with me at the table when I'm making decisions and to determine, am I looking at this from all the right angles? What else do I need to be thinking about that I'm not thinking about? I need that strategic advisor that is a long-term need. That is not something you fill with a contractor. So you got to recognize what are the needs. And when you go to your boss or whoever it happens to be that, you're, that you need to get resources from, when you're putting that three-year strategy in place, you need to start by saying, here are the temporary things that have to get done. Here are the permanent things that have to get done. And here's where the, per the temporary things could potentially move into permanent. And so now you can talk about the temporary can either be, you know, typically done by a contractor or you kind of said, look, you know what, if we don't have a lot of money, you as the head of the group and the only employee, you just got to suck it up and you get it done. It's a one time thing. Or maybe you could try and get somebody internally to help you out. The permanent needs have to be filled with a with a with a new hire. And then you get the temporary stuff that moves into permanent. You can outsource that and you could go over and say, look, maybe what we do is we take a little less risk. Let's outsource that initially with the idea of bringing that eventually in-house. And maybe that's what happens in year two or three. So you need to identify that. And the most important thing is when you're presenting this strategy and this plan back to whether it's your CFO, your, your direct boss, the CEO, whoever it happens to be, and whether you're in finance, it has nothing really to do with FP&A at this point, but whether it's you're in finance or in sales or marketing or operations or whatever, it's the same kind of approach. You, the more holistic you can be and the more you can anticipate what their questions are and answer that in your presentation, the better your presentation is going to go. Because, and also, you need to be realistic, right? You might think, okay, if when I stepped into digital realty and said, okay, this company has, you know, they're in 18 different countries. They have, you know, they're in the S&P 500. They have over 2,000 employees. This is not a role for one person. Okay, that's, that's obvious. But is it a role for two people, three people, eight people, 12 people? That's to be determined. So if you go out and say, I want to go and hire eight people from day one, whoever you're talking to is going to throw it right back at you and say, are you kidding me? We're not going to make that kind of investment right now. You got to take it in stages and you got to, once again, think about that demand. You've got to be building. If you have excess supply, you, you're in trouble. You need to go over and have excess demand. Always keep your group in demand. So you start off and you say, look, I need to start off with two people. They're going to do this. They're going to, I need business partners to go and engage with the business. I need a technical person to engage with the systems to make sure that we are going to be gathering the data in the right way, eventually to build out a new system. Maybe it's Planful, maybe it's uh, one of Planful's competitors. We'll not necessarily mention them, but you know, that's, that's the approach that, that you need to go and take and say, okay, I'm going to start with two. 
And then I'm going to get to the point where they are building up the demand. And I can come back and say, you know what? Eight months from now, I need another person or I need another two people. Or here's what now that I've achieved success in my first year and I hit all of those goals. Year two, as I stated to you before, I need to bring five people on because this is where we're going. And you can see and you've demonstrated that success. So you have that momentum behind you. If you just come out of the blue and say, hey, give me five people, they're going to be like, for what? You haven't shown us you could do anything yet. So you once again, you got to build that demand. And you got to show that success. And as you do that, that's how you ramp up. You can't just go in and say, give me everything I want. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got to continuously show the ROI, right? I, I think the Thanks. the other one that you potentially touched on at the very start of your conversation there, Glenn, was there's that inflection point of what, you know, what type of work is it? Is it this routine manual work that I need somebody to do uh well could I automate that is also another question that we we talk about I know Chris always says you know stop throwing people at problems that technology can solve right so that's also probably part of your evaluation in the three-year strategy which you you have probably articulated and said well there's all this stuff that we do that you know, I could probably spend X amount on uh, some technology that'll do that for us. So I'm going to automate that part. Um, Then I'm going to go through this decision-making process of, well, there's all this, uh, you know, non-routine stuff, stuff that's ad hoc that um, is, you know, not that intellectually complicated. I could probably keep that low cost or offshore. And then there's all this super complicated stuff that is non-routine or even routine that I need someone right next to me with. And that's where you go and hire internally. And so that's another paradigm that I think about uh, quite frequently in the marketing and in the revenue operations world is what's routine and non-routine. So, you know, what's the consistent stuff that we always need to do? Can I automate it? Probably not. Well, I should keep it, try and like keep it low cost then. Can I, you know, if I can't keep it low cost, why not? Well, maybe it's because it's really complicated work that needs a lot of, you know, deep domain expertise and things like that. Well, that's where you want to spend the money and get the high ROI. So that's another perspective that I always like to bring to this conversation. Chris, well, Rowan, before you before you leave that thought, let me just chime in real quick. Sure. The other piece of it, it's not just about, hey, this is really technical. I need to, to have, uh, you know, someone who could be right here with me. Remember, we're also building out relationships. And relationships are a long-term thing. And building out a strong relationship with your business partner is critical. If you try and offshore that, go cheap, go with a contractor, you're going to screw up that relationship. So it might not be a, you know, hey, I need a strong technical person. It could just be I need to have an ongoing relationship with the head of marketing Mm -hmm. because of the work and the stuff that they're doing. I need to have someone who this person can get to know, build that trust, and that relationship can last for years. And that's when you also want to make sure you're hiring somebody. Yeah, love that additive point about the, I think, uh, Chris, in your four P's mentality, it's the partnership for fourth P, right? Let, Most let, important way. Yeah, let's go to you then. So uh, as we've kind of discussed, what's your perspective on uh, on this element? Yeah, so when I talked, when I was listening to Galeen talk through it, right, like for me, it's it's different. So when I first started off at Amarsis, right, it was all, I was a one of one building everything directly from scratch. So when I'm looking at the four P's and I was thinking through this as Glenn was talking, the first P I started had to start off with that I had to prove value on was optimizing our processes, right? 
like having an outsourced accounting partner, having outsourced intelligence, like I needed to make sure I had a scalable way of bringing those processes. That was the first piece. Right. And that was honestly, like if I'm being transparent, that was my whole first year. Like my whole first year at Amarsis was like, Chris, you have to build out the processes and frameworks. Right. Like it was like I got to build out the skeleton of the house. Right. Like I had to build out the lumber. I had to get these things. I had to optimize stuff. The second one that I went into was not around people. Now, let me let me let me tell you guys this one. Right. So we got outside of a year. Right. And I'm having a conversation. I check the boxes. They're like, OK, Chris, you passed your probationary period. I'm like, thank you. I'm, I'm glad I, I'm glad I passed my probationary period. We don't really have that in the U.S., but sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it came down to saying our CFO, my direct manager was like, all right, Chris, we need to pump on the gas like. This is how our Emea team is set up. They're set up with six people. Our uh, APAC team has eight people. Here's the positions you need to go for. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And this is me challenging our CFO, all of our leaders, right? Our CFO, he's got like 20, 30 years experience over top of me. And like, this is the play so many organizations make, right? They're like, Chris is one. We got to get people. And I said, hold on, stop, 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 stop. I don't need to go hire six more people. Let's let's do this. Give me the tools and technology that I need right now. Right. Give me uh, give me, you know, Oracle Fusion for our GL platform. Right. Give me Power BI for our business intelligence. Right. Give me, uh, you know, this this solution around the AP process. Right. Like I, I was already going through and said, give me the platform in that next P, the platform or the technologies. Right. I said, let's not invest into that. And then once we made that incremental investment in technologies, I got the processes down. I got the the pro, the the platforms that are helping me find automation in the processes. Now I'm ready for my people. And now the people wasn't about like, hey, Chris, you need a person to go enter AP bills. I was like, no, no, no. I need a person on competencies, right? I didn't need them to go do stuff. I wanted to have people to complement the competencies that we needed in the team. So the third P that I went to was the people aspect. And I said, okay, for this portion of it, we got uh, accounting uh, outsourced. It's in-house now. I need someone that is uh, independent. They can deliver results. They can manage complexity and they understand the value of partnership. So like I manage my entire workflow around people around the competency basis of it. The competencies that I needed to complement. And again, another like lesson learned through that is I was not hiring people with the same competencies that I have. Please, let's just take a second, right? Let's have a heart to heart real quick, right? Let's just talk. It's us. We're all talking together. We're all friends here. Please, as accounting, finance, FPA leaders, stop hiring people that have the same skill set as you. Stop it. Like, slap you on the hand. Stop doing that. Like, Go hire competencies. And I found people that were like, hey, one thing I struggle with is I don't really have a lot of attention to detail. Like it takes me time to get attention to detail. So let me go find somebody that that's a great skill set that they have and do that piece of it, which leads me to my last P, which is all about the partnership. Right. That's all about the, the, the grow and expand. Right. So now that, you know, I spent the whole first year working through the processes. I spent the whole second year, we, we made investments to get the platforms and technologies that we need to supplement the, the processes. 
Now I got the people focused in the right element in that process, in that processes and platform and technology that I need it. Now let's let's amplify the partnership that we bring to the organization. Let's amplify the communication. Let's amplify the collaboration. Let's amplify the coordination. Let's amplify the connecting tissue of the business, right? So process number one, building the house. I got the wood and skeletal framework. The platform is I made the I made it a smart home. The third one around the people, I had great project managers to to do things. And now I said, it's a it's a nice house partnership. Everybody come over to the house now. Everybody come over. Here's where we're gonna have people over. That's what I wanted to do with it. And too many times along that way, I seen like the the traditional pieces of it. It's like, hey, Chris is done. Get six more people. Or so for me, that was kind of where I realized is like this is this is a lot of like you know, and, and through the same time, like I'm gonna be honest with everybody, like I was learning, like I didn't have a framework. I didn't go read a Harvard Business Review article or look at a blog post to do this. I was like, I think this is the right thing to do. Like this is how I want to go about doing it. So. For me, it was like that recipe and that MVP of learning. I had completely made a lot of mistakes along the way, sometimes on the people side. I undervalued the the time and it would take on some of the platform pieces of it. And I probably missed a couple of process steps in there along the way. <laughs> but again, like it was all about like testing, learning, feedback, and just constant loop around it. And to me, when you get to that decision-making process of do I bring it in the house, do I buy it, do I outsource it? I think you got to evaluate those four P's and like which one are those four P's are the most important because in Glenn example, right? It was about processes, then people. You just got to think about like, how are you going to continue to walk along that journey? And for me at Amarsis, that was, that was a framework that I used that was super successful. And we've talked about it a lot, right? It's different for every business, right? Not every yes. business is the same. Not every business has the same strategy, the same goals, the same time horizons, the same you know, infrastructure capabilities, you've got to assess your business at that moment in time, which is why what Chris said is so important. It's great to go out there and get multiple perspectives from, you know, great smart people, Harvard Business Review, uh, you know, uh, great advisory services companies. They're all super helpful. But you've got to do that rationalization in your brain and and collaborate and align with your executives about what is right for you and, and the moment in time in your business. Because to Glenn's point, his his perspective is was very different than Chris's perspective, right? De- very different companies. He's walking into an S&P 500 company, $3 billion in revenue. The, the goals, the strategies, the vehicles, the things to do things are so different to what Chris walked into. And, and that is the most important part of all of this is understand those frameworks and take the best of them and, and make it, you, you know, yours. Um, I'm going to get into, uh, you know, interview mode here um, for you, Chris. Um, would you do, would you do that same process again? Or would you change what you did? Um, sounds like you would change it, but would you change the the sequencing of the four P's at a high level? I, I think for me, you you hit the nail right on the head, right? Like you got to really adapt it to the the business, the value proposition you want to have, and what's really the most important, right? Like sometimes, like you know, business evolve, business is changing. Think about the environment we're in right now, right? Like that. The pandemic has literally changed the way a lot of people are evaluating those four P's. And 
you can call them whatever you can fill in the gaps of whatever your four P's are for me. That's just what's been like really helpful for me to linearly think about. So for me, it's like I wouldn't I, I, I always think a lot of leaders make a, the same mistake as they say, I'm walking into another organization. I did that before. Let me rinse and repeat what I did before. That is a fundamental mistake. Don't do that. Like, take a second, understand it, right? Understand, like, okay, maybe it makes the most sense. Is like, I'm the first person. Like, the first P of it is people because the organization brought in me, right? They brought in me. So they're saying, we got to have the people aspect of it first. And then maybe the platform, then the processes, and then the partnership. Or maybe it's like, hey, we brought in Chris Ortega, like the organization I was, the, the SaaS company I was at before. The piece of that one was completely different. It was they brought in me as a person, right? So their first aspect was they wanted to invest in the person. They invested into me, right? They said, Chris, as you're coming in from this big uh, drug development, publicly traded company, you know, that just recently acquired, we, we're bringing you in to build this out because of your expertise, right? The second P in that situation was the partnership. They said, Chris, what's most important for you and where you need to be focused is entrenching our partnership aspect of it, right? And then the, sec the, the next one that came after that was actually uh, the platforms, was the technology. And then it was the processes. So in, any, in multiple situations, it's like you hit the nail right on the head, Rowan. You have to take a lay of the land. I am always, in everything that I do, man, I'm always about what is the baseline? What is the baseline that I need to establish with the people, what is the baseline I need to establish with the business? What is the baseline that I need to establish with the vision and the strategy? Because that'll tell you like, here's where you're at into your analogy in that moment in time. That moment in time is gonna start a season. That season starts a journey, but you gotta know where you're at in that moment in time. And for me, I think that four P process framework and how you figure it out, it's, it's just been something that's been helpful for me in like three different ground up grassroots efforts in building FDNA. I love it. Glenn, let's uh let's tie back this all back to the value proposition of FPNA. Um mm -hmm. my my assumption is your your general and I wrote down I wrote down your three steps, right? Which was step one, assessment, 30 days. Step two, three-year strategy and big rock detail and granular detail. You had 29 specific items over a three-year strategy. And then step three was align and execute, right? Get everyone aligned to that three-year strategy and then go and execute against the aligned strategy. Right. Um, you, you may have documented that differently, but that's just what the notes I took. Um, tell me, how do you bring all of that, that three-year strategy back to the value proposition of what you're trying to deliver for the organization? Or is it so obvious that that three-year strategy is the value proposition? Uh, it's a little of both, I would say. Uh, you know, I think when you are presenting the strategy, you have to go and explain the why, right? You can't just go over and say, hey, we're going to go and add these things because whoever you're talking to is going to say, well, what am I going to get out of it? Why do I care? Why do I want to invest in it? So you got to have that Here's, here's what you're going to do, here's how it's going to work, here's what you're going to need, and here's what you're going to get in the end. And when you get that buy-in from people, you know, because remember, you got to do your research, you got to do that legwork first in your assessment. And so you need to know where do people want to go. And then you, you're putting together that roadmap of how you're going to get there so that when you're presenting your strategy back, 
you're saying this you give me these resources i could deliver these things for the business and you already know what you are trying to deliver for the business is what the business wants because if you don't know that up front you're just kind of taking a shot in the dark and you know you're going over and you're saying hey look you know what we could all go over and and here's how we could go to disneyland and go on space mountain and you're talking to a whole bunch of people of a fear of heights they're not going to want to do that, right? So you need to know what is it that they are interested in, what do they need, and then you go and you take, you say, here's the journey that we go on, here's what we need to go on that journey. And so it's really about putting it all together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, Chris, his four Ps that, that he just talked about, great idea, love the concept. But oftentimes what happens is it's not, unique steps. And I think Chris will probably agree with this. You can't go over and say, okay, I'm going to tackle this one P first, then I'm going to do this one. Once <laughs> yeah. those are completed, I'm going to do this one over here. Like, no, no, no. These things all blend together. And Thanks. you're doing all this stuff at the same time. So when you're talking about your assessment, you have to be putting your strategy together. You have to be identifying what your resources are. You got to figure out what that outcome is. And then you got to go over when you're presenting it back, you got to tell that complete story. You can't just segment it out and say, okay, forget about what you just heard here. Now we're going to shift gears and go talk about this other thing over here. It's like, no, here's how it all connects. And you got to tell that connected story. And the other thing I'm going to point out is when you're doing your strategy, don't just make your, don't make your pitch to your direct boss or your CFO and say, here's what I want to do for financing. Here's what the resources that I need are. Yes, you need to get their approval for those resources. But also go out to all your business partners and say, from the conversations that we had, here's the strategy that I'd like to do. Here's the time frame, the, the, the roadmap of how we're going to get to where you want us to be. This way, they see that. They see that you listen to them. They see that you have a plan in place. And you are now setting expectations that say, if you're able to get these resources, Here's when you will deliver on what they want. This way they're not expecting, oh, yeah, well, you know, you have no system or anything in place, but I expect to have automated reporting on the fifth business day of every month in the next 30 days. Where it's like, no, that ain't going to happen, right? So you have to go over and make sure you're setting out those right expectations. You want to make sure you're giving yourself enough time that you know you're going to achieve it. You know, 90% chance of achieving, but... You can't push it so far out that people say, no, 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 that doesn't work for me. I need it sooner. So you got to find that balance and you got to present it. And it's got to go across that wide spectrum of the organization. So you're not just saying this is a finance thing. You say this is an organizational wide thing. I, I love it, Glenn. I, uh, for those, I think one of the things that uh, Glenn said was the, you know, explain the why, right? Do the context setting, right? Which is super important because... If people don't have the context, they don't have the viewpoint, right? For those that have never listened to it, go Google Simon Sinek, why? Uh, Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. It's one of the most powerful presentations you'll you'll see. Um, Simon Sinek talks about, you know, it's, it's much easier for people to comprehend once they understand the why. Um, you've got to find your why. Um, but then the next question that always typically comes, and this is, you know, something I do as well is, uh, as a, as a leader is what's in it for me, right? Whip just, them. yeah, just simple, simple, any transformation, any change management, always remember that with model, right? What's in it for me. And so you've got to go and set that context, which is exactly what Glenn said. 
go to those business partners, have those conversations before you go to your leadership. Because if you go to your leadership and you tell them what you're going to do and they turn around and say, well, have you spoken to anyone else about this? And you say, no, it, it kind of, it falls a bit flat on you. It's not a great look. So go out, talk to your business partners, give them the why, and then give them the what's in it for you, right? Because then they're going to have give you the buy-in and then when they're, when your boss asks them and, and is back-channeling and just doing their job and says, hey, you know, Chris came up and gave me this proposal. What did you think of that? And if that person turns around and said, what proposal? I have no idea what Chris is doing. Again, not really helpful for you. So make sure that you step back and, and really think about that organizational um, change that you're going to create intentionally, right? You're you, you've got the right intent, you've got the right um, motivation, you're trying to bring the business forward. You can't do it if you don't have everyone else alongside of you, right? You know, uh, I think there's that, that great proverb, if you want to go fast alone, if you want to go fast, go together. Um, so do, do that, go fast, go together. Um, Chris. If you want to go fast, if you want to go fast, go alone. If yeah. you want to go farther, go together. Correct, that's the one. Yeah, I got it hey, wrong. And, and wrote... And Rowan, to what you said, like, let me give somebody like out of all the conversations at PNA Fridays we had, I want to give one golden nuggets that's like next level. With um, we talk about these analogies, right? If you want to know the best way to partner inside the business to get people what you want them to do and like drive advocacy, set in a sales conversation. Like salespeople, they are all about with them. They're all about. Uh, setting agreed upon time closing procedures. They're all like, honestly, like when I learned how to internally sell to get people to buy in and like do that process, like I just learned it from the salespeople that I've been a part of and the sales conversations I've been a part of. So if you want to find like a way to say, hey, Chris, how do I build with them and how do I drive audience engagement? How do I get that buy in? Go directly to your top selling salesperson that just closed that million dollar AR deal. And say, like, look, I just want to listen to one of your calls. Like, how do you get people aligned? How do you get them to commit? How do you deal with blockers? How do you how do you present a business case to somebody to get them to know, like, you know, this is what they're invested into? Seriously, like you said that, and I'm just like, I I know we talked about that, but like, how do you be a FPNA selling person inside the business is really, really like a game-changing uh, aspect of it. So I got I to gotta chime in here because this is really funny. My meeting right before this was with my team, and we're going through an exercise to go through Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, because I love that book. And today we were talking about um, habits three and four. Habit four is think win-win. That is, and that's exactly what we're talking about. You've got to be thinking about what does the other side want? Where do they want to get to? If you are only going into a conversation thinking about what you want, you're going to screw it up. You've got to go in thinking about what does the other side want and make sure that you're going to solve their problem because they don't really care too much about your problem. Maybe they do. Maybe they're a nice person. They think that way too. But they may not. And so if it's all about you, you're probably going to lose some of your audience. You got to make sure that you're thinking about the audience. What do they want? What do they want to get out of it? And you're solving their problem. Now, once, once you do that, they're going to be on board and they're going to support you. 
Yeah, I love it. I think that's a really good uh, finishing point for today, right? Um, for those that haven't read it, go and read. Uh, go and read Seven Highly uh, Effective Habits of Highly Effective People. It's an it's an amazing book. It's something I reread re- reasonably frequently because uh, sometimes my habits don't stick. Uh, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> uh, I love it, Glenn. So uh, and and definitely, you know, resources. Definitely go and uh, look at Simon Sinek's why. It's in a really powerful, amazing video, really helpful as well. Uh, and you'll see how Steve Jobs convinced us all to buy iPhones uh, if you do that. Um, everybody, uh, happy Friday. Have an amazing weekend. Uh, enjoy your weekend. Sunshine out here in California as per usual. Have a uh, have an amazing next week. And uh, we'll be back next Friday with FPNA Fridays. I'm Rowan Tonkin, Planful CMO. I'm joined by Glenn Snyder, head of FPNA at Global Growth, and Chris Ortega, head of FPNA at uh, Amasis. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>